We are very excited to announce we're hosting our first Meetup in the Left Field 2022 on October 21st in Columbus, Ohio. We have Zoomed together for two years, and it is beyond time to meet face-to-face. The primary purpose of this meeting will be to meet your fellow left fielders, as well as to meet and interact with some of our community's favorite sponsors and professionals. The plan is to host a special infielder event Thursday night, October 20th, which will include appetizers, drinks, and the opportunity to connect with your Zoom friends. That will be followed by a full day of networking and meetings on Friday, October 21st. The cost to attend the event is $250. Members of the infield community will get a $100 discount and a free month of membership if they sign up before September 15th. We hope to see you soon in the left field. Hello, left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. You know, I try to keep things as simple as possible. It's very difficult to build new product and get it out of the ground. So what I try to do is, again, keep it simple. If I was had to make decisions based off of what's happening right now today, and quite frankly, if everybody had to make decisions based off of what's happening today, nobody would ever build a house. No one ever built apartment complex. Since you are here listening to this podcast, there's a good chance you're investing with a group of people. Whether you're investing with family or friends or like-minded people in the left field investors community, group investing is a strategy that can get you into more deals, help you diversify, and go beyond what you can achieve by yourself. Before TribeVest came along, it was difficult to overcome all the hurdles associated with group investing. It was basically a strategy reserved for the wealthy, not anymore. Now, TribeVest helps your group with everything from incorporation, collaboration, banking, and equity management tools all in a single place. So you can focus on building wealth with the people you know, like, and trust. I'm using TribeVest for all five, now six of my investor tribes. It's a game changer. Check them out at TribeVest.com. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeFest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the left field community. I'm excited today to have Brian Underwood with us. He's the founding principal of Responsible Real Estate, a San Diego-based real estate company. He spent 10 years in the family self-storage business prior to his current focus on middle-income housing. So Brian, welcome to Passive Investing from Left Field Podcast. Awesome. Hey, thank you for having me. Excited to be here today. Yeah, it's a pleasure. And, you know, so the way we generally start out is just by hearing your journey, your financial journey mostly. How did you grow up thinking about finance? How did you get into real estate? And, you know, how did you get to where you are now as a, you know, syndicator of multifamily properties? Sure. Yeah, no, that's great. So I actually, I grew up in a single parent household. So my mother raised me. And what I did see growing up was that we had a family business, okay? And so in my journey, I actually worked for a family business at one point. But early on, what I saw was, 
she had small ownership of a little bit of self-storage. And that small ownership helped her be a stay-at-home mother and helped us go through great education, helped us play sports. And so, but not knowing, you know, when I'm in third, fourth, fifth grade, you don't really understand it. But as you get into high school, you start really seeing, my goodness, this real estate gig, this real estate investment has provided not only for my family, it's provided an opportunity for my mom to really like, you know, really invest in her kids, be at home, like I said, take us to sports, go through a great education. And so when I sort of fast forwarded in life, sort of had this itch of real estate. And it was really kind of like, a I was curious. Of course, I saw the family business. I saw the wealth that it has provided, like generational wealth that it provided. But I sort of had this, this curiosity of how it all worked, right? But the question that I was trying to answer, this would have been if I had to put a date to it, this was like 2004 going into 2005. I was searching for how does somebody put a value on a piece of real estate? And I just was fascinated by that question because people are buying and selling all the time. But what is a building worth and what is a piece of land worth? And so I just remember at that point in time, I had a mentor that I connected with that he was doing his first development deal. And I said, well, you know, can I help? (laughs) Right. I have this interest in real estate. I, I just got my salesperson license and I'm just trying to learn. And he said, yeah, come on board, like help me. So I sat in meetings with architects. I sat in meetings with civil engineers And I'm reading books on how all this stuff works and learning while I'm doing. And that kind of spun me into my first real estate deal, which was a piece of land that we purchased in a city called Santee. And that's in Southern California. It's kind of an East County submarket in San Diego. So here's me. I, I just got my salesperson license. I just started working with this mentor of mine. I'm reading all these books and I find this piece of land. I think it was on the MLS. It was owned by the YMCA industrial piece. And I said, well, here you go. They, they want $250,000 for the 16,000 square foot piece of land. What can we do with it? And so because I had a mentor that was a little bit more seasoned than me, he's like, oh, gosh, industrial is kind of a nice little sweet spot right here. I bet we could build a spec industrial building. And so I was putting all of the things that I was reading about to work, meaning I took an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper and I kind of wrote out, here's my back of the napkin pro forma on how I can potentially invest in this deal and how I can actually get money out of this deal. And I sat with a family member. And I said, hey, I've got an investment opportunity here. I'd like to go you know, be a third partner in this deal and invest $50,000. Can I borrow $50,000? <laughs> right? I mean, you can imagine they're looking at me like, you've never done this before. You know, you're, you're relatively young. Yes, you're interested in this, but you want to borrow $50,000. And so I, you know, I had put together, I planned, I put together a business plan like we all should and say, here's, here's how we're investing and here's how we're going to get it back. So Long story short is my first deal, borrowed $50,000, bought into this deal, working with a civil and an architect. And six months later, we sold it for $425,000. I gave the family member their money back. I gave them interest with all the closing costs. I think I had like $70,000 in the bank. And I said, how do I do that again? Right. I was hooked. Right. So a little yeah. bit of that's a little bit of kind of like, you know, the history all the way to through like my very first deal. But I was hooked at that point. So how did you then... What did you do next, I guess, is the real question. I want to go back in in a second to the mentor question, but what did you do next? You had your first successful deal, and it wasn't 
you know, anything that, that you're doing now, it's, I mean, it's buying land and converting it to industrial. That's like a, that's a totally different thing than, than residential real estate. So what was your next, what was your next step? So my, my next step was, which I'm still on, I'm, I'm, I'm still on this, this learning, this education process. If you've been in this business, I've been in this business for 17 years. And so if you're just getting into it, whether you're passive or you're active, there's something to learn every single day. Okay. I mean, it is just, it's complex. It's vast. There's so many different pieces that, that make the puzzle work. There's also a lot of different opportunities to make money and focus in different areas, depending on your personality. But going back, like, what did I do next? I said, how do I get better at this? How do I learn? So this is at the point where I said, okay, my family has a business. It's quite large. They focus on self-storage. I didn't really know anything about self-storage. And quite frankly, I didn't care about self-storage at that point. What I cared about was learning real estate the same way I learned in that deal up front. I wanted to get better at that. So I went and sat with my uncle who runs the company. And I said, here's what I've been doing. I love this stuff. I want a job. And we have a great big family. It wasn't easy to get a job there. It, it was kind of, I don't know if he was testing me or what, but the, the, the first response was no. <laughs> and, I, and I said, okay, well, I'm also the kind of guy that doesn't take no very lightly. Like it could be a no, but I'm going to explore it more because the things that I was trying to convey to him made too much sense for me to receive a no. And so I just started poking around the edges and I'm like, okay, well, maybe I'm not explaining myself right. Let me reiterate what I was saying. Here's what I've been doing. And I love this stuff. I want to get better. How can I help you in what you're doing? Like, what are the things that you are trying to explore that you don't have time to explore? And at the time he said, well, we're kind of really into trying to explore a business plan around storage condos, which were very popular in 05, 06, and 07. I think they have made a comeback in this last run-up that we've had, but they went away during the Great Recession. And I said, great, let me put together a business plan for you and I'll go explore that concept. You can put me on a temporary basis. And in six months, you could ask my boss, Tyler Exter, if I'm wasting his time. If I am, I'll leave, no questions asked. But if I'm not, I'd like a permanent job in acquisitions. And so we struck a deal right? I, I got in. <laughs> I got in. And so I spent the next year putting together and exploring storage condos. I also worked with a guy named Tyler Exter, who was my boss at the time, who's still a mentor of mine today. And he taught me how to formally put together a cash flow analysis. Like I created a pro forma for the very first time. I learned how to underwrite property, right? I also met a guy named Dr. Reedy who ran a master's in real estate program at the University of San Diego. And so in this pursuit of furthering my education and furthering my experience, I got into the family business. I'm working on a business plan. I'm learning from a mentor who is just very savvy at real estate. And then I found out about a program that where you can actually go get a master's in real estate. And so I applied and I got in. So I spent sort of the next three years kind of on the job doing in the family business, but also went back to school and got a master's in real estate from the University of San Diego. Okay, well, I, I want to see where this ends up, but I do want to, you mentioned mentors several times, right? And, and it seems like 
it makes sense if you're working for somebody that they could turn into a mentor. It makes sense that your uncle's in real estate and he could be a mentor. How did you find that first mentor? Because you weren't working for someone. And, you know, in real estate, people are constantly talking about, oh, you got to go out and find yourself a mentor. But you have to offer them something. You can't just say, hey, buddy, be my mentor. So how did you navigate that with your first mentor, who I assume was was less connected to your actual employed status at the time? Yeah, not not connected. Nevertheless, he was a relationship. And so I think that you have to understand who the relationships are around you and understand what they do. I'm just by nature, I'm inquisitive, I'm curious, and I just I kind of want to know how things work. And this th- my my first mentor, Chris, he actually didn't have a background in real estate, but he was a very savvy businessman. He, you know, he he started a power electronics company and had warehouses in Taiwan, like all over the world. He sold that company to go into real estate for all the reasons why we like it. So we were sort of learning together. But here's the thing is when I met with Chris, I recognized that he had some ideas and he was by himself and he didn't have the bandwidth to execute them. And so I offered my services. I said, can I come on board and help you? I mean, I'll keep my day job and I can work weekends. I can, you know, I can work Monday through Thursday and work for you Fridays. And so I, I was doing it in a way that I wasn't expecting anything back. I was doing it in a way that if I can offer you something and I can learn from you, then that's that's all I expect. I just want to get in the trenches and the opportunity to learn. And I think that's important to recognize. It's not just a, hey, can you mentor me? I think you want to really find who are the people that you admire in your life, not the person. I mean, you could have mentors that you've never met. I don't, but like, you know, you could follow people online and they could be a mentor of yours. I like relationships. I like to be able to meet people face to face. So look, Who's influential in your life? Who's someone who's doing something that you're curious about and have a have a, you know, have a meal with them and figure out, like, what are the pieces that they're struggling with that perhaps you could help with? Like, it's in our nature of like reciprocation. So you're probably going to get something back. I just would do it in a way that you don't expect anything in return. You just want to learn. Yeah, that's well said. So then now you're working in the family business in self-storage. And what happens next? It's been three years or or how long do you work in self-storage? And then I know, I kind of know the end is you're not in self-storage anymore. So that's, that's, I'm really curious about that. Yes, correct. So very thankful. I spent 2007 to 2017 in the family business. And this is really where I credit, you know, all of my on the job learning and, you know, all of the support that I had through that period of time. But in that 10-year period, I was able to take $60 million and go buy land. I was able to source deals, off-market deals, on-market deals, underwrite deals, negotiate deals, put deals under contract, write contracts. I realized what property due diligence was, right? I I had to manage all, all the relationships with our due diligence. I had to manage all of the escrow timelines and all of our commitments with those sellers, right? I had to put together loan packages for loans. I had to go interact with local municipalities to secure entitlements for a million and a half square feet of storage over that 10-year period. I mean, I'm just, I'm scratching the surface of all these different facets of real estate that a lot of people specialize in that I got to do. I got to wear all those hats over a 10-year period. And so I really learned sort of that well-rounded approach, like how do I source deals, right? 
okay, what is a contract? You know, what type of contract should I use for this deal? Is this so, so tricky that I should probably have an attorney drafter? Is this something I feel like I can do on my own? I, I still do that, by the way, in my own stuff. Some of the contracts I do on my own and some of them I have attorneys draft. It depends on what you're dealing with. So over that 10-year period, I, it just it was it was a blessing to be able to, you know, to go spend that kind of money buying land, securing entitlements, and, and just really honing all my skills in the real estate development world. That was that 10-year period. If you have any questions around that, I want to dig deeper, happy to do so. Yeah, I, I neglected to ask a question that I, I meant to ask earlier, but we're still on storage. So what, is, what are storage condos? I've never heard of that. So, I mean, you think about the difference between like apartment and a townhome or a condominium, very similar. You know, an apartment you rent and you have a landlord and a condo you buy, right? And there's financing available. So the key there is there's financing available. So back in 05, 06, and 07, storage condos were a thing. So what they would do is, and you could still, again, you could find them in town. Instead of having like a 10 by 30, which would be like your large self-storage, which you would just use for storage, these would be like 14 foot, sometimes larger, sometimes 20 feet wide by like 40 or sometimes even 80 feet. And it would be like toy storage, personal toy storage. So someone had a boat, you know, they had motorcycles or they just wanted a man cave right? They would, they would buy this garage essentially close to their house and there was financing available for these products back then. So you could buy a $200,000 storage condo by putting like $20,000 down. And at the time, you know, your payment on your mortgage for your storage condos was less than what you could rent anything like that for in the market. So it made sense to buy. Well, when the great recession hit, that financing was like the first thing to go away. Right. I mean, a, a lot of financing for a lot of product went away. Something creative right. like that was was gone like very early. So anyway, yeah, that's a story. It's actually mapped. I mean, you own it. Right. You've got you've got title to the condo. There's an HOA. There's CCNRs. Right. Everything that you would imagine in like a residential. But it's kind of like a offsite toy storage. You know, that's kind of the way I think about right. it. Oh, that's interesting. I, I hadn't heard of that before. All right. So now you've been at self-storage for 10 years. You're set to just keep working for the family business forever and be a, a self-storage you know, magnate here. But you're here to talk about multifamily housing. So clearly you pivoted. What, what made you go out on your own and what made you change asset classes? Yeah. So again, maybe it's the way that I'm built, but I do think it's important for all of us to continue to you know, be challenged and also grow your skill sets. And so one of the things that happened in the family business for me in particular was I stopped growing. Okay, so that was like personally, professionally, spiritually, you name it. And mainly because the family business is very focused. And this is a really good thing, by the way. This isn't a bad thing, but very focused. Their focus is we want to buy the best two self-storage sites every single year, and we want to go build them. Okay, well, after you do real estate acquisitions for a family like ours who builds in certain areas and is very strategic about what they do, my job of finding two deals every single year, I could literally do in my sleep. Okay. And I don't mean that like, like I'm puffing my chest. I just mean, you know, it's a 10,000 hour rule. You get really good at something. I could find sites. And so, you know, back, it was like kind of 2015 is when I really started to feel like, okay, I don't know if I'm going to be here forever unless I have some further opportunity for me to explore, grow, 
you know, kind of create my own wealth generation and those sorts of things. Right. And so I started poking around the edges and asking the family, like, what else can I be doing? And the response was always, well, you know, keep your head down. You'll be fine in 20 years. And that's just not my personality. (laughs) So it was at that point in 2015 that I realized, you know what? They're probably going to make me CEO of this $2 billion business. And am I okay to say no to that? And the answer was yes. And so I started thinking about what am I going to do different? Okay, so I'm going to roll out. I'm going to start a company. It's not going to be a storage company because I don't want to compete with the family. But what else can I be doing? And really, I just I'm a real estate geek. I just kind of love everything about it. And there's like I said, there's a lot of different ways to make money. And so I started just tapping my relationships in San Diego. And I said, what are you guys doing? And I just kept hearing about this home building thing and about the lack of supply in home building and, you know, this, this great need. And I'm thinking to myself, well, if the need is so great, how come we're not building more? (laughs) Right. So anyway, that was sort of the entry into, okay, I'm rolling out. I had to be okay saying no to taking over the company. My daughter was born on May 17th, 2017, and two weeks later is when I left the family business to start responsible real estate and to focus on home building. Hey, left fielders, this is Julian McClurkin. When I'm not on the court with the Harlem Globetrotters, I'm the chief storyteller for TribeVest. Now, you might be thinking, why would TribeVest hire a Globetrotter? Well, through my travels around the world, I've met so many amazing people and heard their incredible stories. And it's no different at TribeVest. My job is to share the stories of people investing together as a group, as a tribe. TribeVest allows groups to pool their capital, set up their LLCs and bank accounts, help with operating agreements, funding rounds, and so much more. Whether you're investing with other dads from your kid's preschool class or getting into real estate syndications with people around the country like LFI infielder Brian Pawnell, TribeVest helps them all make it happen. If you want to hear more about stories about TribeVest's customers, just check out TribeVest's YouTube channel. And if you're already ready to start investing as a group, head on over to TribeVest.com today. At BAM Capital, we democratize institutional grade multifamily assets for the individual investor. Since inception, we've averaged over a 31% annualized return net to our investors. My name is Ivan Barrett. I'm the founder and CEO of BAM Capital. I sincerely hope you go to the website capital.thebamcompanies.com and check out BAM Capital. So there's a couple questions there. Why did you name your company Responsible Real Estate? To me, that implies there's something behind that. There's a mission or a mission statement behind that. Yeah, the mission statement is actually a Bible verse, Galatians uh, 5.13. So called to live in freedom, brothers and sisters, don't use your freedom to satisfy selfish desires, use your freedom to serve one another. And so as I sort of was thinking about that verse, it's like, how do I start a company that like serves people? And like, I'm always like thinking about growth centric terms. And so when I, when you kind of like parse responsible, it's like the ability to respond. Right. And so 
like the ability to respond, like you come to me and you need a service and I respond to you, like right away we're engaging and we're growing with each other. And so that like service of others coming from that Bible verse and then my ability to respond, I thought that the responsible real estate like had sort of that buzz term to it, but also parsing the response ability, right? The response ability with that Bible verse was kind of like, how the creation of responsible real estate. That's how it all came together. And so now you are, are you building ground up developments or are you buying existing properties and doing rehabs? We're doing both. So my very first, so one of the things that I realized, which you guys have all probably, all your listeners have realized this probably before me, (laughs) okay, (laughs) is I came from a family business that was quite unique. Okay, in that it was family money that we use for every single deal. Okay, when you go out on your own and you don't have money in your bank account, how do you do real estate? How do you put deals together? Right. So I learned about real estate syndications as a way for me to raise capital. I didn't know anything about real estate syndications for the first 12 years of me being in this business. I didn't need to know it. It wasn't, it just wasn't a part of my daily job. I had to learn about that. And so my very first deal, which we're actually about to go soup to nuts on, is a ground up, build to rent, townhome development, also in Santee, that same market where I did my first deal. And I raised a million and a half dollars on that deal. And we constructed 10 build to rent townhomes. I have eight of 10 leased. I'm about to lease my ninth and we're under contract to sell that asset as soon as I get this ninth one leased up, which we're probably going to do today, actually, which I'm really excited about. And so the that's the first project you did. And since then, you've been building these build to rent or are you building apartments or does it vary? Do you have different kind of projects? Yeah. So there's kind of two brands. Okay. The first brand is responsible residential. And I have a business partner in that. His name's Sean Jones. And we did our very first housing project together, the the build to rent townhomes. We are looking for more of those. But organically, as we work through that, that deal, we were working with a group named Urban Housing Partners in San Diego, and you can look them up. And they are kind of synonymous with very dense urban infill multifamily development in San Diego. They were working on a fee base in our townhome project. And organically, we realized that we're trying to do the same things. They're pivoting from an owner's rep kind of project management role into doing more of their own deals. And Sean and I were one of the things that we learned about with our 10 unit townhome development is we would be spending the same amount of time and effort if we were building 100 units as we are 10. So let's go build 100. And so Sean and I recently became partners of Urban Housing Partners, and there's five of us, and we're focused on very dense urban infill. We have two projects in our pipeline. One is an 89-unit market rate apartment in North Park, and the other is a 240-unit in National City. So that's under the bigger brand of Urban Housing Partners with responsible residential. Those are smaller syndications that were focused on build-to-rent townhomes. I have also done a couple value adds. It's not right in my wheelhouse, but I'm a real estate geek. And when I see opportunity, I can't pass it up. <laughs> so I we, we syndicated, we did a 506B syndication to buy 20 units in Bay Park. And then I've got another one that I'm close to buying in Boise, Idaho. Okay. 
So, you know, most people, when they think of California, they think, yeah, okay, you live there, but certainly you're not going to invest there. So can you talk a little bit about, about California and, and how you're doing it there? And then also what type of multifamily units are these? Are these, there's a lot of, you know, there's always these luxury A-class buildings going up. Is that what you're doing? Or are you doing, you know, I think you mentioned it was kind of middle income housing. So is it, is it a, a lower tier of, of uh, tenant? Yeah. So it's not a, it's not a lower, these are market rate that have an affordability aspect to it. So, you know, every okay. city is going to be a little bit different. And so, yes, it's very difficult to build and buy in California, but it's also a great place to own real estate, you know, kind of politics aside, Southern California and California coastal cities, real estate has always done extremely well because the demand is there. Now it's not for the faint of heart. It's very challenging. There's a lot of difficulties. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of staying power. And so combined, our group has over 100 years experience in developing in San Diego. And so we understand the process and we have the relationships to go get it done. And if you have that, you can create some tremendous value. This is a group that historically didn't bring on partners where now for the first time, we're allowing other people to invest alongside us in our deals. Okay. The projects that we're building when you talk about middle market. So these are utilizing the micro unit. I'm going to get a little technical here. So sorry if I lose you, but in the city of San Diego, there's a micro unit, hundred percent density bonus. Okay. So if the land only lets me build and the zoning only lets me build 35 units, I could actually build 70 units if I develop them under the micro unit strategy. Now, they're not small, like 300 square feet, right? But they're smaller in size. And by nature, those micro units are more affordable than any other unit in the market. Like what you're paying for rent is going to be less than other units. And it fits within the affordability aspect in the city of San Diego. Like it's under that code section. So they are very nice buildings. They're podium projects. They're very expensive to build, but we're doing it in a way that we're trying to deliver it to the market where people can actually like pay rent because things are very expensive in San Diego. Yeah. Okay. So what, what's the exit on these? If you're, you're building them, you're leasing them up, then are you selling them as soon as they're fully leased? Or are, you, are you holding and, and uh, just holding for cash flow? So another big lesson learned by myself when I put together the townhome deal, and I know that I, I knew this because I, I saw the family is you want to hang on to as much real estate as you can. It's difficult for somebody like me, or if you're in my position, because a lot of times how you end up getting paid is by is on the sale when the waterfall hits. But what we're trying to do is strategically set up all of our deals moving forward, which I did not do in Santee. All of our deals moving forward, we want to do it in a way that we're incentivized and the investors are taken care of by holding this thing long-term. And so we're trying to come up with creative ways where it still makes sense, you know, where we could get paid, like there, there's fees involved, there's things that we can do to get paid where we can feed feed our families. But at the same time, we want to hang on to these things for the next 50 years. So we're actually really motivated to not be merchant builders. A lot of people are. We would like to build, recapitalize the deal, and then hang on to these things forever. And by recapitalize, you mean refinance everybody out so they get their capital back and their cash flow? No, not necessarily yeah. refinance everybody out. Our, our number one risk in development is takeout financing of our construction loan. To me, that's our number one risk. People say, well, what about 
you know, price increases. Of course, yes, that's a risk. But what about, you know, actually like the construction process? Yes, that's a risk. They're, those are low in my mind, because if you have a competent team, this is what they do all day long. We can go get that part done. What we can't predict is four years from today, what the capital markets look like and what takeout financing looks like. So we do a lot of stress tests on our models for that. And, and we try to figure out like, what's the doom and gloom scenario. And so what I've realized in my experience, and this goes back to self-storage investors in the Great Recession all the way to today, is we're putting a minimum of 35% equity in every single deal. So we got like 35% equity, 65% debt. Ideally, that's even like 37, 38, and then like 62, 63. Because if you look out four years, when you start tr- like stress testing, how can we get refinancing on this loan and take this loan out? Like that's the sweet spot where like you could sleep good at night. <laughs> if if you don't put that much money in, you start going, ooh, things have to kind of go just right. Well, I've been in this game long enough. Things never go just right. Things never go exactly like you plan them. You have to plan for contingencies. And so that's one way that we do it, where we know that even if it's doom and gloom four years from now, we're going to be able to we're going to be able to get this loan out. We're going to be able to hang on to this property. It may not be the home run that we thought we were, but every piece of real estate, if you hang on to it for 20 years, is a home run, by the way. That's a good point. <laughs> um, so can you explain what takeout financing is and when it happens? I assume it's the transition from the construction loan to a more stable loan, but can you talk about the process and when it happens and you know what you're seeing in debt now, I know it's super uncertain because you don't know no one knows where it's going, but kind of what you're seeing. Sure. Now. Yeah, I mean, like so for our product. So yeah, so I mean, when we put our deals together on the ground up construction, we're essentially, you know, you're gonna close on your construction loan like the day that you get your building permit. Okay. And those construction loans are a little bit different, but typically you're gonna have like a three year with like a one year extension. Okay. Sometimes you can get interest only. Sometimes it's tied to like LIBOR plus. Okay. So LIBOR, you can look up 30 day LIBOR and they'll get put like a spread on it. Okay. So what we're trying to do is on these larger projects, it's a two year construction period, basically. Right. So for the first two years, we're basically, we've got interest reserve built into our capital stack and we're taking loan draws and we're paying interest all the way. Okay. So the start of year three, so been two years, the start of year three is when we start to lease up. Okay, so now we can start bringing in some income, right? Every model is a little bit different, but let's say it takes us seven or eight months to lease that up. Okay, so now we're two years and eight months and we're fully leased. Okay, so now I have operational data that I can now go to the debt markets and say, look, we've got a brand new product, we're leased up. Here's our operating expenses, here's our income, here's our expenses, right? You, get, you, show, them, you show them what you're making and they say, okay. And we hire you know, really, really smart people like the folks at Northmark Capital. And so these are like, these are structured finance people that know equity and debt, and they help us go shop the debt that we're looking for. Debt comes in all different size and colors, right? Do you want recourse, non-recourse? Do you want interest only? Do you want interest only for a period of time? And then an amortize. I mean, it's just, it gets very complicated. So we use people that are really smart to help us with that. And I would encourage other people to do that as well, because it's very difficult to be your own mortgage broker. And oftentimes just going to your bank isn't the right way to go about it. Now I'm talking about these are $35 million projects. It's not like I'm building a single family home, right? But ideally what we're trying to do is actually take out that loan, the construction loan with a new permanent loan as soon as we can. But certainly we want to do it before we, you know, before year three or four, when the term is up on our construction loan. So really it's somewhere in year three that you're going to the debt markets 
and you're going to get a permanent loan. It might make sense to put amortizing debt on that. You know, there's agency debt, there's local banks, there's private debt funds. They all require different stuff. And so, like I said, it gets real complicated. So use smart people to help you. <laughs> that's what we do. Uh, that's critical, right? I, I finally learned that, right? I don't do my own taxes. I don't write my own contracts anymore. I hire smart people to do that stuff for me. So I like it when you when you say that. So how have current economic conditions, you know, the uncertainty around inflation and costs and supply chains, how has that affected the properties that you are constructing and, and that are already in progress? Yeah, that's great. No, it's it's definitely affecting new builds. You know, there's a couple different things happening and I, I try to track the best that I can. You know, what are the what are the big boys, what are the big players doing? I read a lot of different economic papers. You know, inflation is not helping with material costs, but at the same time it's helping with rent costs. So one thing that's you know, I try to keep things as simple as possible. It's very difficult to build new product and get it out of the ground. So what I try to do is again keep it simple. If I was had to make decisions based off of what's happening right now today, and quite frankly, if everybody had to make decisions based off of what's happening today, nobody would ever build a house. No one would ever build apartment complex. Okay, so one thing that I actually like, that I really like about the ground up development is it's so it takes such a long time that yes, we very much care about what's happening in the macro and micro markets all around the world. But at the same time, it's like, if I was so concerned about it, I wouldn't, I wouldn't build anything. And so we just have to, we have to just create their, our contingencies around what's happening. And so the way we contingency plan, again, it's like put enough money in the deal. We try to surround ourselves with the best people. We try to only hire the, the, the most competent people. Like as an example, in this 89 unit, right? We have one of the best contractors who's also an investor in the deal, who's going to build this project. Okay. Now, why would a contractor like invest in a deal if they thought that this is a terrible time to build and they couldn't control costs, right? Like these guys are, no, they they don't know what steel is going to be, you know, 18 months from today, but this is what they do for a living. So internally, they're always, you know, they have their contingency plans. We have our contingency plans, hire competent people, you know, be as conservative as you can. You know, these are just some of the things that we're trying to do every single day. So while absolutely things are affecting home building, that's from single family home subdivisions all the way to apartments, you know, there's just as many people that are bullish on, well, shoot, as soon as you stop, that means I get to build more, (laughs) you know? So I like the long-term horizon because it keeps us disciplined. It does keep us always refining our pro forma. We're always stress testing, but we're just trying to make one decision at a time one step at a time with the best people that we could hire. And for passive investors, right, typically we're expecting cash flow. We do development deals sometimes, but it's really not the bulk of what what most of us do. Can you compare and contrast a little bit the cash flow, you know, buying an, an existing apartment, doing a little value add and cash flowing it versus ground up development where you're building it, you might not see anything for two years and then the cash flow comes later. Can you kind of just compare those a little bit for the listeners? Sure. Yeah. You're, I mean, you're, you're definitely going to have different returns. Okay. So now sometimes they could be the same in Southern California. I mean, it depends on the market. Like you can go to another market right now and someone can probably offer you like day one, 
we could buy a 6% return on cost and I could give you an 8 or 9% cash on cash. Like that might exist, not in San Diego, okay? So if you want to go buy an existing apartment complex in San Diego, the cap rates have adjusted a little bit, but you're not going to buy anything at like a five cap. It just, it just doesn't exist. Very, very, very difficult to find if you find one that's actually trading at like a five cap. Okay, so there's got to be some like value add component to that apartment, right? For me to be able to bring that up to like, say, a 6% return on cost, I've got to be able to go in and make something happen where on the development side, that's what we're shooting for. Okay, we're shooting for we're building to a 6% return on cost. That may not sound like a lot of money, but here's the difference is if I go do a value add apartment complex, I might be able to give you decent cash flow today. But the value that I'm creating on that asset is relative. I'm not going to say it's small. It's relative. Where if we go build an apartment complex, a brand new one, I'm going to get you a better return on cost. I'm going to get you a, a decent return on your cash flow once we start leasing this up. But right away on paper, I've doubled your money. The day we start leasing up, I've doubled your money. So while we might not sell, we might hang on to that forever. That's equity that will never go away. Like, yes, it fluctuates like this. But if we ever sold that asset, you know, you're two times day one. You might be three or four or 15 years from now. So we ever sell that asset. It's like a tremendous wealth creator. While it might not give you the instant cash flow, the wealth creation is tremendous. That's the best way for me to describe the two. Yeah. And the thought behind the, the two is that because once you've built it, it's done and it's ready to be in service, then it, it's worth twice as much as you paid for, basically, but the cost to build. Yeah, it's not necessarily the, the cost to build. It's the equity that we needed to build it. So if I'm raising 12 million bucks, right. you know, day one, if we sold it to if we sold it to an investor, right, we're going to get out at least 2x, like literally like the day we start leasing it up. So obviously, you lease it all the way up. The longer you hold it, the increased cash flow, you pay down debt. Like you just got just, again, it's just this tremendous wealth creation. I've seen it in storage. I mean, I put tons of storage deals together over my 10-year period. And you put permanent financing on that in a way that you you plan on holding this for a long term. You know, it's like you got an asset that you built for 12 million bucks, you know, that the day you, the, the literally the, the day that it you, you've got it completed is worth 15 and then it's leased up and it's worth 18. You got $10 million of debt. And you fast forward 10 years from now, you got $6 million of debt. Your, your cash flow increased. So now it's not worth 18, it's worth 28. And you got $8 million of debt. You just, I mean, you got $20 million of value right there. And, it, it, you know, you raised three, $4 million to get the deal done. It's, it's staggering, right? I mean, it's just crazy. But that's why we love it. <laughs> I mean, that's why we're in this game. No, exactly. I mean, it's, it's a great strategy. Just it takes a little longer to play out than what a lot of us are used to. And so there's some impatience there for immediate cash flow. But, you know, my thought is if you start on this early enough, then, and you get in a few of them, you'll always have one that's coming online and ready to go. It's just the startup is, is, t- takes a little bit. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. It's not like, I mean, if you're going to be investing, you need to be, this isn't the right word, but like an active passive investor. If you're an LP like you've got to be active, right? You're not just going to like put money in one and then wait five years. Like maybe, but like you want to you want to be investing in deals because they are going to stagger. 
One might give you cash day one. Like if you can do two deals a year or one deal a year for the next five years, right? Then I'm putting one in a development deal. And then I put one in another one. I got cash flow coming in. And then three years from now, this one pops, right? And it's it's compounding. It's just absolutely it's compounding. Yeah, that's fantastic. So the last question I usually ask is, what is a great podcast that you listen to? Oh, passing investing from the left field. Come on, man. <laughs> that is the exact correct answer. Fantastic. If you got another one, I'll hear it, but that's enough for me. That's it, brother. <laughs> awesome. So if listeners want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, go to investwithbrian.com, investwithbrian.com. It's Brian with a Y, investwithbrian.com. Perfect. I'll put that in the show notes. And listen, it was great getting to know you and hearing about you know, ground up development. We don't talk about it much. So this was a really impactful episode for me personally. I appreciate you being on the show. Awesome, man. Thanks for having me. Had a lot of fun. Great. Thank you. It was an interesting conversation with Brian. We started out talking about mentors and that's been a big role in his business life. And I thought it was interesting. His first mentor wasn't even really a real estate guy. It was just a, a business person, but it got him thinking into real estate and, and really was his his way in, even though that's not exactly what the guy had his expertise in. And then you notice each step of the way, Brian found a new person to mentor him and train him. And he always talked about giving something back to that mentor. And that's the hard part is you can't just walk around and say, hey, who wants to mentor me? You have to have something that you're giving and then you will get back much more. And so he always found something that he could help them with or offered to them and then they were willing to, to help him. So I think that's pretty powerful. And also, he was always willing to learn and be challenged and keep growing. And that is that is critical. Right? He he had the opportunity to be CEO of his family company and you know work, work there for the rest of his career. But he wanted to challenge and he wanted to keep growing. And he thought the best way to do that was to go out on his own. And obviously, it worked because he's he's been successful in ground up development. You know, I think a lot of us in the left field. We avoid it. I know I do because I, I'm a cash flow investor and I want cash flow now. And ground up development is a little bit of speculation because you're not sure it's going to work. There is the promise of future benefits in, in cash flow. So it's not strict speculation in my mind, but it's just something to think about that, you know, you are, it's a longer term deal until you get paid out. But if you come up with a strategy of layering the deals, meaning maybe you do one every year. So in year one, no cash flow. Year two, no cash flow. But maybe year three, the year one deal is cash flowing. And then in year four, the, the second year. And so once you get them going, then they keep cash flowing and you can you can build a strategy around that. It just takes a little bit more patience. I'm not sure I currently have that patience, but I'm working on it. Work in progress. And then, you know, I when I, he was talking or when I was preparing for this, I was focused on how interesting it was that he changed asset classes. He went from self-storage to multifamily. But that isn't his story. What he didn't change was his strategy of development. The asset class is not as important as his strategy. He has always been a development guy, finding land, building something on it. Now, you know, he's building multifamily instead of self-storage. So for me, yes, it's an asset class change, but the strategy, the difficult part of this is the development part, not the managing of the asset class in my view. So although he did make a pivot, it was interesting to me that he pivoted into the same strategy with a different asset class. And, there, and I think that's why he's having some success because he hasn't changed his strategy. So that's something that I found very interesting. 
But anyway, that was an interesting podcast. I was really thankful that Brian agreed to come on the show. And we will keep our eyes on him just like we do all of our other guests and see what he gets into next. That is all we have for today. We'll see you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting. <laughs>